Faced with theories of demons everywhere or demons nowhere, what should the follower of Jesus Christ believe about Satan, demons, possession, and exorcism? These are our questions as our study leader, Dave Woodson, begins this focus on Jesus' power over demons. Even police departments have to take Satan worship seriously. The violence of the occult and the deception of it and how it has very powerful influence. Believers across the country are becoming very much aware of the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Satan. Kind of in the secular world, a couple of years ago, a famous psychiatrist named M. Scott Peck wrote a book called The People of the Lie. And this is another thing that would have flabbergasted me a few years ago. I would have never dreamed that a psychiatrist trained at Western Reserve, a medical doctor, and recognized in the field of psychiatry would write a book in which he's calling the psychiatric profession to give serious study to the problem of evil. And he's saying that we in psychiatry have whitewashed the diabolical nature of the heart of man. In fact, one of the major chapters in that book is a very scintillating description of an exorcism that Dr. Peck attended where he actually watched the exorcism of a demon and he comes out very strongly in that book to argue for a personal locus, not just a general force that represents evil. He argues for a personal locus called Satan, who is the, the ultimate ruler over the kingdom of evil. We still have many that hold a view that's been very prominent in our culture, and that is that there isn't any such thing as Satan. There's no such thing as demons that what we have is a superstition of years past, of ancient times, where the air was filled with malignant spirits, maligning spirits that were trying to destroy us. And so in the modern world, there's this tremendous conflict between those that believe that the air is filled with demonic beings and that daily that we're in this incredible conflict with these demons and much of the world has decided that in order to counteract the demonic influence, you need to wear charms, you need to get special formulas, you need to use some incantations, you need to burn some incense, and that'll war the demons away. And we're going to look at how that kind of an idea permeated ancient culture. On the other hand, you have the modern scientific view, which many times says that the air is just a gas, and there aren't demons, there are not evil spirits, uh, they're not, they put that on the same level as ghosts. And so you have these two extremes. Is the air filled with demons or is it filled with just gas? And you've got these two extreme views that are counteracting one another. Now what do we do as biblical believers? What we need to learn to do is to open up the scriptures and to ask ourselves, well, what does God teach us about demons? And let's begin in order to get kind of the setting let me share with you a little bit about what the beliefs in the ancient world were about evil spirits, demons. When we talk about demons, we're talking about some form of a supernatural being who, when we use the word demon, usually in our thinking, it implies a very evil supernatural influence, uh, something that's trying to hurt us, something that's trying to harm us. 
Let me just sketch a few things about the way the Greeks felt about demons. If you study Homer, for example, the word demon will be used for just for the gods, for the pagan gods. Homer will also use it, for example, of a, a strong giftedness, like a genius. In fact, in the Greek culture, they would say that Socrates had a demon. And what they meant was that he was very gifted. Somehow he had knowledge that was superior. So the Greeks would use it in, in that regard of, of these kind of powerful influences that went far beyond what ordinary mortals would believe. They also came to develop in the popular mind that the demons were the ghosts of departed mighty men. For example, some of the heroes of the Greek culture were especially feared and they would hold that these mighty men would come back to the earth as spirit beings, which would be like our word ghost, and they were especially frightening to people. So in the Greek society, there was a strong belief that you had ghosts, who, which they equated to demons, who would infiltrate human ranks and wreak great havoc. And so you would have magic rites that would develop in order to counteract uh, those evil influences. When you go down to Egypt, you've all heard of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The Egyptians didn't make a strong contrast between the gods and the spirits, or they didn't have a strong idea that there was an ultimate God, and then there were subordinate supernatural beings, which we ordinarily think of as we have the Lord God, then we have angels, which are the good side of the subordinate supernatural beings, and then you have demons or those of the evil supernatural beings. The Egyptians didn't have any of that separation. They would use the word for demon to apply to the gods. And the gods could be manipulated different ways. For one minute they might wreak havoc against you. They might harm you. The next moment they might be good. They were very capricious. And there was a whole caste in the Egyptian society of priests that were especially skilled at using some of the incantations, some of the different magical rites that could deliver you from the evil influences of the gods. In Egypt, they believed strongly that there were different forms of diseases that were caused by the demons. And they had a demon of death or a spirit of death who could use different kinds of diseases to suck the life out of human beings. So you have that strong idea once again in Egypt. You have an idea that the evil spirits or the demons are also the spirits of the departed dead. Now, when you go up into Sumer, you've got some scintillating, very scary forms of, of demonology. In fact, the Babylonians had what they called the hag, Lalushta, who was believed to be this very wicked, evil woman that if you little children in the group were out wandering by yourself in the lonely places, that Lalushta would come and the hag would steal you and take your life. Also, they had a demon who was like a demon of lust that would attack the men called Lalitu. And Lalitu would come and she would cause men to lust after a woman. And they believed that that was the cause of seduction in the Mesopotamian society in Babylon. You'll hear that in our society as well. That lust is the result of a demon of lust that causes us to do what we do when we sin in that regard. They also had all kinds of demons that they believed were in the lonely, desolate places. They had um, a demon, the hairy goat demon, which was also prevalent in lower Egypt. They would worship what was called the goat demon. 
and in any of the, the modern forms of the occult, you're going to have a strong stress upon the worship of the goat. The hairy one is what they'll call the goat idol in Egypt. Uh, and in the Old Testament, it will be called that as well. So in Mesopotamia, we've got words like the ripper. In other words, the phrase for one of the demons is called the ripper or the destroyer or the vicious violent one. And they would give names to their demons to represent some of these very malicious evil forces that were at work. Now, when we come into that world, here was a world in Greece, Rome, and in Mesopotamia where the air was filled with all kinds of evil spirits, where you needed to learn special incantations, special kinds of magical formulas in order to conquer these demons. And lest you think that what I just told you is ancient history, there is a direct line between the Book of the Dead of Egypt, between the, the magical rites of ancient Babylon, and some of the things that I just gave you an overview, the worship of the goat idol, uh, we could go on and talk about child sacrifice, which, which the Old Testament explicitly commands against. And you'll find that there's a direct line from those ancient beliefs right up into the modern world. You see, one of the games that Satan plays is that he'll convince a culture that the demonic is totally unreal, that it's just the figment of the ancient world's imagination. And it'll take a culture through a period of time for maybe 30, 40 years where they're very objective, they're very scientific, and they look upon life as just being material. But that creates a tremendous hunger in the human psyche. It creates a tremendous passion for something that goes beyond that because inside of us, there's a hunger for God. Now, Satan tries to replace that hunger for the true God with a hunger for the gods. And the American society is moving out of maybe 30 or 40 years of worshiping materialism and living just for objectivity, just for reason, laughing at the idea of the occult. And now the occult is coming back with great power. In fact, if you were to ask people, how many of you read the astrological chart every day? You'll be amazed at the number of people that do that. Right at lunch with a businessman this past week, one of the businessmen I was talking to was tremendously exercised because on Channel 13 or one of the programs on TV, they had an astrologer that was speaking about astrological beliefs and they could not believe the calls into that program to learn about that. It's becoming tremendously powerful. In our high school, kids will be tempted to join a group that begins to say, hey, look what I found. And they picked up some occult literature and you can see a whole track and a whole segment in any of the bookstores across the Metroplex, the occult. And all the materials right there, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Nostradamus, and on right down the line of all the occult literature. And so what we're talking about is not just something that's rooted way back there. These ancient beliefs keep recycling themselves in other forms and other ways and they're right back with us. So there we have the Egyptian, Greek, Mesopotamian culture that's very much in tune with the ideas of malignant evil spirits that you need to use magic in order to counteract their influence and also able to manipulate their influence. When we come to the Old Testament, what does God tell us about belief in demons in the Old Testament? The very first thing that I want you to realize that the Old Testament teaches is that the demons that are worshipped, for example, in Egypt, 
which the Israelites had a lot of exposure to, God says in the Old Testament that the demons and all of these pantheons and all the gods in themselves is just a figment of someone's imagination. In other words, that all these pantheons like in Egypt, Horus and the falcon god and the crocodile god and up in Babylon you have Marduk who was the, the, the big god of Babylon and like Lalitu that I talked about and Ea, the god of the waters. The, the Old Testament would teach that that was all just a figment of someone's imagination. But what the Old Testament went on to teach is that behind that worship, behind all of those stories, there were objective, evil, demonic beings that the people were actually worshiping. And as we open up, for example, let's just take some uh, passages from the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. As Moses prepares the people to enter the promised land, he tells these chosen people of God this in Deuteronomy 32, 17. It says in verse 16, They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. And here we have Moses talking about Israel's plunge into, into idolatry. Even before that happened in the fullest extent, Moses is, as a prophet is predicting what will happen. It says they made the Lord God jealous with their foreign gods. Some of the gods that I just mentioned to you from Egypt and Babylon. They sacrifice, and here's our word, they actually sacrifice in verse 17 to demons which are not God. Now that sounds like a very simple statement. One of the things I want you to get is a tremendous contrast. Young people and children and all the way up to moms and dads and adults. You are going to worship the true God. You're going to sing His praises. You're going to sing that Jesus is the Lord. You're going to believe in your heart that Jesus is the Lord. Or you're going to end up worshiping demonic beings. Those are the choices. You'll end up worshiping in the kingdom of evil. Because those are the two forces, those are the two supernatural personalities that are behind all of reality. In other words, in the spiritual realm, there is the triune God God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are in another class. You notice Deuteronomy 32 says the demonic beings are not gods. They are not in the same class of ultimate reality, of personal creative being that our true God is. And that's very important to realize. There's not a duality. God is over all. He is in a class by Himself. But He's a gentleman, you might say. He's a gracious Father. He's a kind Father. And especially in the age of grace, He doesn't force the issue. He doesn't come to us and grab our lives and, and dominate us and say, you must believe in Me and you must worship Me. But Satan's just the opposite. He's an adversary who is no gentleman. And he will seize the human personality and he will dominate it and he will cap capture it and enslave it. And that's why Moses was so strong. He was teaching the children of Israel way back in 1400 B.C. He was saying, these heathen nations around you, they do not worship the true God. 
What they are worshiping are demonic beings who are no gods. He says this, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. And you have deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And the Lord God is warning the children of Israel by telling them beforehand about the treachery, the tragedy, the unfaithfulness of his people turning away from the true God who is genuinely there to worship demonic beings who are also genuinely there, but who are not even at all in the same class as the true God and who in essence are the epitome of evil and violence and hurt. Turning your Bibles also in the Old Testament, let's look at Leviticus 17.7. And we'll pick up another Old Testament reference. Leviticus 17, verse 7. They must no longer, which meant that in the age of Moses, when the Ten Commandments were given, the children of Israel were already involved in the occult. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifice and the NIV translated to the hairy ones or the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance from generation to generation. Turn to the Psalms, just so we don't just think it's in the Decalogue. Turn to Psalm 106, 37. I'll begin with verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples. These were the peoples that were involved in idolatry as the Lord had commanded to them. But instead they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. What were these customs? They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. What did the worship of these idols cause them to do? They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood and the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did, and by their deeds they prostituted themselves. A lot of people ask, you know, like you'll have Satanists who say, well, human sacrifice is not involved in the worship of Satan. That's a lie. The sacrifice of human beings has been involved in the worship of Satan from Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God of heaven said, Eve and Adam, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen? Thou shalt surely what? die. The serpent comes into the garden. He says to Eve, Eve, has God commanded you that you cannot eat of all the trees of the garden? The very first time that we have the ruler of the demonic beings coming on the scene in the Bible, this ruler, what does he say? He says, if God were good, if God wanted the best for you, then he would let you eat of all the trees of the garden. He would give you total freedom. There would be no restrictions. Second of all, Satan went on to lie from that after implying God isn't really good. God doesn't really want the best for you. After doing that, the second thing that the serpent did was to tell a direct lie. He said, God knows in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God knows in the day that you do that, you're going to become like him. Now, what was the implication of that? It's a very powerful implication. God is a Scrooge. God is keeping things from you. God doesn't want you to be like him. I want you to think about that lie. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, let us make man in the what? In the image of God. What does Satan say is God's purpose? 
He doesn't want you to be like him. He's screwed. He's keeping you from something. You see what a diabolical lie that was? Satan grabs a human personality, gets him to rebel against God by telling him a vicious, murderous lie, and they end up plunging towards death, towards becoming like a beast, right at the very beginning. And down through the Old Testament, we study whenever people get involved in the worship of demonic beings and turn away from the worship of the true God, they plunge into becoming like beasts. They plunge into death. They plunge into violence. They plunge into passions that are very destructive and hurt them. So whenever you hear, like you'll hear in a talk show, as Satan is saying, it never involves cruelty. It never involves violence. It never involves the hurting of children or the hurting of adults or human sacrifice. You remember that down through the centuries, the occult has always led to the murderous violence, especially against the weak, and the innocent. And so as God's people, joining with God's people in the Old Testament, we worship the true God and have nothing to do with the demonic occult side of existence. The Old Testament was very strong in saying that behind the worship of the idols, there were demonic beings that would suck the life out of people. What about some of the cures for demon possession in the Old Testament? For the most part, demons in the Old Testament are not given, it's not highly developed. In fact, uh, you have the idea even of Satan of coming from the throne of God where God gives permission for him to carry out certain things. In other words, God puts boundaries around him. And there's not a lot of development of the idea of Satan having uh, supernatural beings that are underneath him. But we do have some implications, some insinuations in the Old Testament. One story that you can remember very well is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Remember when Saul had rebelled against God, where Saul had willfully, again and again and again, disobeyed the commands of God. It says God turned him over. And an evil spirit came upon Saul and he began to become insane, violently insane, so much so that he would eventually try to take the life of his son. You remember how they called for a brilliant harp player named David and David would come into the palace and when this evil spirit would come upon Saul David would play with his heart I can't help but think that he played Psalm 23 and some of the beautiful psalms that we have recorded in the hymn book of Israel that would counteract the kingdom of darkness and it talks about how Saul was able to win some release as Jewish literature developed during the intertestamental period, they talked about Solomon having tremendous wisdom and power even within the demonic kingdom. Which leads us, as we come to the New Testament, to one of the major ideas of the New Testament is that the ultimate son of David, we had King David in 1 Samuel 16 able to use his gifts to be able to fight against the kingdom of evil that was revealing itself in the, in the life of Saul, we have a stress in the Jewish literature on a son of David named Solomon who had power over the demons. As we come to the New Testament, as we look at Jesus' power over demons, we have the ultimate son of David that's able to deal with the occult. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 5. We've been in Matthew a lot. I think Mark will give us a little bit fuller account, although this is recorded in Matthew as well. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record 
the exorcism that we want to look at today. Look at Mark chapter 5. We begin, it says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. This is right after Jesus displayed his power over nature and quieting the, the sea, the unruliness and the storm at sea. And we turn in chapter 5 of Mark to Jesus' power over the demonic. It says, when Jesus got out of the boat, you ordinarily think of going on a boat ride, you get out of the boat and you arrive on the beach and everyone kind of collects firewood or something to get ready to camp out. Uh, they weren't able to do that. A man with an evil spirit. And that's another way that the Bible refers to the demon. It refers to it as an evil spirit. Another phrase that will be used is a spirit of weakness or a spirit of violent cruelty. They'll speak of it like that. Here it uses the idea of a spirit which produces very serious pain and hurt in the human personality. It says that this person with an evil spirit, a man, came out of the tombs to meet him. This is a good passage to study on the eve of Halloween. Because throughout the ancient world, how many of you at Halloween have ever gone to a graveyard? On a hayride, you've driven through a graveyard. How many of you have ever done that? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? The reason we do that, how many of you feel creepy in a graveyard? Come on, let's be honest. How many of you feel creepy in a graveyard? Why do you feel creepy? Because of the ghosts, right? Okay, because of the ghosts. I want all the children to realize something. You can go to the graveyard. You're not in any more danger than when you're sleeping in your bed at night with your mom patting you on the back. There's not any more ghosts in the graveyard and there's no ghosts in your room. Because one of the things that the Bible teaches is it's, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. If you're a born-again believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You don't hang around planet Earth. If you're a born-again believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you don't get to hang around earth either. You go to a place called Hades, which is like a temporary holding tank until the judgment of God. And Jesus tells us plainly in the story like of the rich man and Lazarus, he speaks about the man who rejected him of being in a place that was separated from the earth. In fact, he was not allowed to come back to the earth. So I want all the children, I want every adult, and this might sound like a very simple idea, but I want to share something with you. As an adult, I like to walk at night. You know, you need to be sane, and you don't want to do it like in Harlem on the Lower East Side. But you don't, you're not afraid of the invisible things that are in the night, the ghosts. Because the Bible's telling us that there aren't any ghosts. But the Bible's also telling us in this context that the demonic beings specialize in death. And they specialize in having a fascination with death. And so as this man began to be controlled by this evil spirit, he went to live among the dead. Now it wasn't the ghosts that were there. It's that Satan specializes in death and so demonic beings were there. No ghosts. But in this case, there was a man who was possessed by a demon. 
And he comes out from these tombs. And boy, you talk about the ultimate boogeyman. This guy was it. This guy was the real boogeyman. No invisible ghost in the night, but a real boogeyman. He came out of the tombs to meet you, to meet the Lord Jesus. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So this tells us some of the properties of demonic possession. A, a fascination with death. A fascination with the place of the dead. And incredible human power. Demon possession can lead to incredible human strength and power. They'd bind this man. They'd even put chains upon him. And it says that he was often, in verse 4, he was often chained, chained hand and foot but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons from his feet. Now, if I was going to encounter this fellow in Gerasen when I arrived, I would want to have about six state troopers with me and probably you better make it the special squad, you know, and they could come in. I mean, this is bad news. You've got a town that's terrorized by this guy. In fact, why would they try to chain him if they weren't uptight with what this guy was doing? And so we get some insight into the, into the tremendous influence that a demon can have upon an individual. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, brothers and sisters, I want, I want every child and every teenager and every adult to understand the picture of what Satan's doing. Because you will at times, be influenced by thoughts in your mind. Sometimes those thoughts just come from the pit of our own human sinfulness. Jesus says from within, out of the hearts of man, come evil thoughts and impurities and violence. We must always be careful not to relieve ourselves of the responsibility of evil by blaming it on the devil and his demons. Now in saying that, I want all of you to realize you can sin real well and I can sin without any help at all. Okay? But in saying that it's also true, if you begin to willfully submit to evil, you begin your conscience through the Word of God, things you've learned in the Bible, teach you principles, you begin to willfully reject that and turn away from that. You start to walk into a kingdom, into an authority structure, which I guarantee you will end up by talking about the destruction of your body, of hurting your body. And you'll have thoughts of cutting, of marring your body. You'll become preoccupied with taking your life. Because remember, in the Garden of Eden, we learned two things. Satan lies, and then he murders. God says, if you do this, you're going to die. Satan says, no, you're not. And when you become part of his kingdom, then he lies to you some more, and he lies again, and he lies again, and you end up destroying yourself. And these are very powerful ideas. I think that many times, suicide flows from that kind of a pattern. That terrible, diabolical idea, destroy your life, take your life. And we've got it right here in the, in the insanity of the demoniac of Gerasene. He's spending night and day cutting himself. 
And you might say, well, man, that's an awfully extreme thing. An alcoholic, an alcoholic that knows in his mind or her mind, I am ruining my liver. I am going to kill myself. Goes right on and does it. The reality, you can face an alcoholic with the reality, you are dying. You are killing yourself. And they go right into, on and do it. It's the same kind of thing. They're cutting themselves. They're destroying themselves. And what we need to counteract with, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies worth something, very much the Lord God of heaven. It's a gift we've received from the Lord. And through the power of Christ, we can overcome this satanic self-destruct principle. And we don't need to cut ourselves. When you have that thought, when you have that thought, don't run away from it and say, no, I never think like that. That thought can come into your mind. The thought to take your life. The thought to hurt yourself. Don't deny it. Jesus already knows it. And Jesus teaches you what that thought is part of. It's part of the kingdom of evil, the diabolical nature of the adversary. And we recognize it for what it is, and we turn to our Savior because He's not rejecting us. We open our life to Him and we let His acceptance and His love cause us to be taught how to value ourselves. And in Him we are set free from this kind of behavior, cutting ourselves and destroying our bodies. Satan is a terrible adversary, but in Christ we can overcome him. So beware of any kinds of passions in our life that move towards self-destruction. That is a very demonic, diabolical thing that the evil one tries to do. When the demoniac saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. Sounds like a good start, doesn't it? And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the, of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now that is an incredible statement. We've learned something of the properties of what demons will do. They can give a man incredible power. They can give a person tremendous self-destruct tendencies. Some of the other synoptic gospels talk to us about how this man is stark naked. The demons lead people to do antisocial nakedness. We're going to read in other portions of the gospels where demons can cause a man not to be powerful like this, but can cause him to be blind and dumb. The New Testament does separate physical illness from the demonic. It doesn't say that disease equals demonic influence like the Egyptians did and like the Mesopotamians did. There's many times a separation. There is the idea in the New Testament of physical illness that's caused by physical things that have gone wrong in the human body. So there is that separation. Although the New Testament will say that at times the demons can use physical disease to accomplish their ends. And so there's some forms of blindness, of the inability to speak, of dumbness, of fits, You'll have passages in the Bible where you'll have a demon-possessed boy who will go into a convulsion and foam at the mouth and be totally uncontrollable. You have all of those different manifestations of the symptoms of demonic activity. But what we want to see is that the demons have tremendous knowledge and they come to the Lord Jesus and they identify Him. This is an incredible thing that the demons know exactly who Jesus is. Look at what, what I've just read. 
They know that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. They know exactly what his identity is. They know when they used that phrase, they knew that he was divine. They also know what their destiny is. Why do they say, don't torture us before the time? Because they know what? They know the time is coming. Now, if that's so, if they know who Jesus is, and they know that they're going to face ultimate eternal judgment, then why do they continue to fight? Why do they continue to plague this man? Why have they plunged this man into violent insanity? Why do they have this man cutting himself? It doesn't make any sense. And that's the point I want every one of you to realize about evil. Much of the modern world is very confused about evil because they're always trying to make sense of it. Something terrible will happen. A very violent, cruel thing will happen. And the modern world will say, let's figure out what happened. What went wrong in school? What went wrong in their family? What went wrong here? What went wrong? What we're trying to do is to explain it. We're trying to get a handle on it. If someone's immoral, we automatically say, the wife must have failed. Or the husband must have failed. There's got to be a cause. What I want you to see of one of the fundamental realities of evil, it does not make sense. It's totally irrational. It's chaos. It's disorder. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense to know who the Son of God is, know He's beaten you, know the game is over, and you go on murdering people. That doesn't make sense. It's insane. And that's exactly what the Bible says evil is. You know, the Bible doesn't even tell us that much about the origin of evil. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't, we don't have a long extended passage. This is how evil came into the world. We just have a serpent jump into the garden. You say, why does God do that? I think the reason is, is because he wants us to realize there is an order in this. There's not rhyme and reason in this. The kingdom of evil is chaos. It's disorder. It's violence. It doesn't make any sense. And the way that you're able to conquer it is to run to the Savior who is rational and who has healthy emotions and makes wise decisions. Because if you're in the other kingdom, you're naked and you become violent, you become self-destructive, and it doesn't make any sense. That's one of the major things I want you to realize. These demonic beings knew who Jesus was. And you'll often have Jesus tell the demon to be quiet because that's not the kind of witness that Jesus wanted. But as they cry out, it's an incredible thing. The demonic spirit world knows who Jesus is. Many times we, who have the opportunity of responding to him, forget who he is. So Jesus tells them to be quiet. Then Jesus asked him in verse 9, what is your name? You'll often have this in uh, exorcism, trying to get a name. In fact, the belief was in the ancient world that if you could get the name of an individual, that that would give you control over him. Now, Jesus didn't have to ask a question in order to get control over anything. In fact, Jesus already knew what the name of the person was. I think he asked the question so his disciples could hear and could learn what can happen in demonic possession because the man said his name was Legion. Some Bible expositors have held that the word Legion gives us some insight into what might have generated this kind of a situation that maybe there was a, the Roman legions, there was some kind of violence that 
plague this man. I think that's trying to introduce modern psychological explanations into the text because the text tells us the reason his name was Legion is that he was inhabited, he was possessed not by one demon, but by a multitude of demons. It says, my name is Legion. This is the demon speaking, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, often, if you read the commentaries on this passage, people get really uptight about the destruction of 2,000 pigs. And how could Jesus have ever done that? Well, if you're going to ask that question, you need to ask the question, why Jesus allowed Satan to do to Job what he did? That's a much harder question than destroying 2,000 pigs. And you really end up with a whole question of what we've been wrestling with is why God allows evil at all? Why does God allow a rebellious kingdom full of cruelty and violence to attack his kingdom? And the Bible doesn't completely answer that question because that's one of the mysteries of the universe. But one of the answers that the Bible gives, and the more that I work with people and the more that I study the scriptures, the more I realize how valuable this answer is, is that in a great mystery of heaven and earth, the Lord God in heaven is the ultimate person, didn't want to make you all honeybees. He didn't want to lock you into behavior patterns. In other words, to use the metaphor that I've used with you in the past, God didn't slam you against the wall of a building and say, you will love me, won't you? He didn't use his omnipotence to force himself upon you. You know why? Because he's designed that the nature of love, the very nature, the very fabric of love, says that power can't generate love. You can't lock people into a behavior pattern. If I am a communist and I put you into a, an intense KGB brainwashing technique and I convince you that you love me, if I take a woman and break her completely and force her to love me, I haven't won anything. All I've got is a nothing. I destroyed the very thing I was after. The only way I could get Mary to love me is I had to risk it. I had to take her across a big trellis in Letchworth, New York. I had to take her out in the woods and I had to risk everything. I had to say, Mary, will you marry me? Now, most men try to get, before they get that far along, they try to test the waters and have other kinds of conversations. But there is that moment where you say, will you marry me? And Mary, about that time, was mad at me enough to maybe say no, but she didn't because she was scared about me taking her across the trellis. But that is the moment of relationship. It's a moment of decision. She could have said, no, I don't want to marry you. Now, I could have slammed her up against a tree. Yes, you will marry me. And girls, watch out. We laugh, but I said that for a very serious reason. There are girls, because they don't value themselves in Christ, and they don't love the Lord Jesus, and they don't realize that they're a queen of heaven, that they're a princess. They will allow a man to force that love to violently demand it because they're so hungry for someone to care. The child of God, don't ever do that. Relationship is free. It's never forced. 
before you say yes to a man, you be sure you're safe in his arms. If I wanted to, if I wanted to, I could use my physical power to hurt Mary. You know, at times she thinks, oh no, you know, I could beat him up. I don't think she could. <laughs> we might have to test it out. <laughs> this is a very important thing. The reality is that I can press a lot more than she can. And that's true of almost, almost everybody in husband and wife relationships. But I doubt very much that Mary ever, ever even wonders about that. And every one of you women, before you jump in the arms of a man, you be sure that he never uses his power to hurt you, to threaten you, to dominate you. Because that's part of the kingdom of evil. And when we as men even have thoughts along those lines, we need to do what I talked about earlier. Just like cutting ourselves, we run to the king of kings that makes us gentle, and makes us kind because the true Lord of heaven and earth never pushes his love. And Jesus said, what, what's the name of this demon? His name is Legion because we are many. And Jesus wants to set this man free from these evil demonic beings that have seized this guy's life and are going to destroy him because these, unlike the Lord Jesus who never pushes his love, this legion of demonic beings will push their dominance, push their enslavement, violently abuse the human personality. They begged Jesus to let them go into the pig. Jesus allowed it to happen. And I think that one of the reasons Jesus allowed that to happen is it shows us very vividly what demons do. Some people have said, well, demons long to have a body. Well, if they long to have a body, why did they hurl 2,000 pigs into the sea? Now, once again, I want you to illustrate a point that I want to burn into your mind today. The commentators will try to explain why the pigs went into the sea. They'll say, well, it was Jewish people taking care of unclean animals, so God took care of two birds with one stone. He threw the pigs into the sea and got rid of the unclean animals. The text doesn't tell us that. Have you ever seen 2,000 animals stampeding? If you want a picture of chaos, there's a picture of chaos. And what did I tell you the demonic beings do? What did I tell you that Satan does? What do I tell you the demons do? They are irrational. They are violent. They bring chaos and disorder. So they plead to go into a herd of pigs and the first thing they do is plunge them to their death. And as you see 2,000 pigs crashing into the Galilean lake, you should remember, Lord, help me to cling to you. Help me to love you. Because you as a single man have the power and the authority and you love me and cherish me and you can protect me from that craziness and that violence that's part of the satanic kingdom. I think 2,000 pigs crash into the sea because that's what Satan does. He destroys irrationally, stupidly. Now notice what the people do. It's an incredible thing. Those taking care of the pigs ran off and they reported this to the town and countryside. The people came out to see what had happened. And you would expect us to have a big revival meeting at this time as we close, but it says when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been demon-possessed. And this is the cure that Jesus gives to 
to a demon-possessed individual. They see him sitting there. He's dressed. He's in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. Now that's crazy. When should you have been afraid of this guy? When he was naked? When he was controlled by a legion of demons? When he was the ultimate boogeyman? That's when you should have been afraid of him. But they were all a million miles away. 2,000 pigs get destroyed and they're really uptight about that. They see a man that's really been healed and they're afraid. Well, they should have been afraid of the power, but the power of Christ was used for them. And then it closes with this. It says the people began to plead with Jesus to leave that region. But I want you to see the graciousness of Jesus. If I were Jesus at that point, I'd say, well, man, that's the way you react to a miracle like that, fooey on the whole town. It says that Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And I would have said, sure, this is a diabolical town. All they care about is pigs. Forget it. Come on in the boat. Jesus did not let him go. He said, go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him to capitalists how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. The love of the Savior. When I was in high school, we used those final verses as our slogan for Christmas break. I told you about my monastery high school experience. Never saw the outside world. When I was about a junior, when I was about a junior, we, a guy, Mike Sly, and I came up with the idea. When we all go home, we want to train the entire student body how to share Christ with their friends that they knew before they came to school. And so for about six weeks before we went home for Christmas break, we had about hour sessions, about once a week, and we explained how to reach people for Christ. We went over how to share the gospel, how to make contacts. We dealt with different things that might come up. And this was the passage we used. Say, David, that was a strange passage, but it was go home and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you, that he has shown mercy upon you. Most of us were living among the tombs. But the Bible says that we were living in the place of the dead. For the wages of sin is death. All of you at times want to take off your clothes. Or you lived it at least when you were young. Why? Why do we want to get rid of the shame before Christ takes it away for good? Because there's very passionate powers within us that like that kingdom. Because we forget where it leads to. A legion of evil spirits does want to suck the life out of all of us. There is a diabolical kingdom. And Jesus comes into all of our lives. And because he died for us and because he rose again, we can be set free. And then Jesus says to us that have been set free, go home, show your friends, show your family. What great things, the mercy that's come into your life, unmerited favor to those that deserve just the opposite.